This podcast is brought to you by DIA, the trusted global neutral forum for healthcare product development professionals. DIA, driving insights to action. Digital health technologies like wearables and stationary sensors are creating waves that ripple through both clinical research and clinical care, and in fact, seem to be facilitating increased and deeper links between research and healthcare delivery. Most of the conversations about these new technologies have focused on innovation, what new things these technologies can do and how they do it. But ensuring the sustainability of these innovations will require funding by policymakers and payers who will need to make policy and reimbursement decisions based on evidence. Do products developed using these new technologies require new types of evidence or new reimbursement models too? Hello, I'm Ebony Deshiel Ajay, Executive Director and Head of Regulatory Patient Engagement and Outcomes Research at Balmarin. I also serve as regional editor for the United States for DIA Global Forum. Today, it is my pleasure to discuss these questions with Jennifer Goldsack, Chief Executive Officer for the Digital Medicine Society. This past June, Jennifer served as panelist in the discussion titled, Paying for Digital Health, What Evidence is Needed? at our DIA Global Annual Meeting 2022 in Chicago. Thank you for joining us and welcome, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me, Ebony. To get started, Jennifer, can you please explain the purpose of the Digital Medicine Society? The Digital Medicine Society, or DIME, is a global nonprofit dedicated to advancing the ethical, effective, equitable, and safe use of digital medicine to redefine healthcare and improve lives. Now, that's a lofty goal, Ebony. So what do we actually do in practice? First and foremost, we convene all of the different experts that are needed at the table in order for us to realize the true promise of digital health to improve lives from citizen scientists and cybersecurity experts through to our engineering and product colleagues, our data science colleagues, clinical science, clinical care providers, healthcare administrators and executives, regulators, payers, funders, investors. Unless we are all pursuing a shared vision, Ebony, we are not going to realize the true promise of digital health. So once we have these experts together, we do an awful lot of applied research to figure out together, using that collective wisdom, what good looks like in the digitized era of healthcare and clinical research. And finally, it doesn't matter if we've identified the right problems. It doesn't matter if we've solved them in the best way possible. If people don't know about those solutions and those best practices, and they aren't fully trained to be able to deploy them. So the third piece of what we do after convening and research, Ebony, is an awful lot of communication and increasingly important is our education arm. So we now offer a variety of different educational options to make sure that each of us is not here to be replaced by a computer or an algorithm, but that we have the capability to harness them in pursuit improved lives of patients, which ultimately is what we're all here to do. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like this ecosystem is quite large for digital health technologies. I'm waiting for someone to prove me wrong, but I've been making the bold statement for about three and a half years now that digital health, digital medicine is the most interdisciplinary field I can think of. And what's interesting, and if we treat that well, some of the most confounding questions that we come up against, things like minimizing patient harm because of security breaches, cybersecurity has been commoditized in other industries. We just need to make sure that we are drawing in those best practices. 
And I think that's a great example of how much more quickly we can move to realize the value of digital innovation, but importantly, how we can minimize the risk of harm as we drive forward. So what it comes back to is, do we have all of the right voices at the table? And based on what we're going to be talking about today, this idea of value and who defines it and how, that also is an example of needing to bring a variety of different stakeholders to the table sooner rather than later to get that right. So speaking of bringing to market and pricing and reimbursement, how is industry considering the evidence needed for pricing and reimbursement of these digital measures? Honestly, Ebony, industry isn't thinking about this. This is a real problem. Back when you were at FDA, you and I have been working on this together for years now, thinking about what is the evidence required in order to build trust in the use of digital endpoints in drug development. We've been thinking about what is the best regulatory science that we can deploy here? How are we meeting the needs of our regulatory colleagues and decision makers, as well as the scientists and the prescribing clinicians? But at no point during the last five or six years while we've been working on this, have I heard people out in industry saying, gosh, and I wonder whether we have the right evidence packet for payers and HTAs so they can decide based on these new flows of evidence that we happen to think are very valuable, that a reimbursement decision and a companion price point is actually going to be tethered to these new forms of evidence. Now, Mm -hmm. that's not to say that we can't generate that evidence, but I am increasingly concerned about the lag in how much progress we've made vis-a-vis what does good look like in terms of evidence that something is fit for purpose through Mm -hmm. the lens of the researcher, through the lens of our regulatory colleagues. But unfortunately, we've largely excluded our payer and HDA colleagues from these conversations. We haven't thought about developing an integrated evidentiary plan in order to get this right. And I think this must be a top priority for any pharma organization or anyone in the life sciences who's thinking about using these tools, we've got to contemplate all of the downstream decision makers. Getting it across the line with our regulatory colleagues is not the end of the road, unfortunately. So can you tell me how how is DIME working toward bringing awareness to this gap? This was one of those moments, Ebony, that about a year or so ago, the moment that we recognized that this was a blind spot, we dug into it with some of our most trusted colleagues in the industry. And actually, we did what we do best, which is convene experts and organizations to come together to address this in the pre-competitive space. So I was very proud that Anthem, um, which for folks, this is a, a an international podcast, so they are a large private insurance company here in the US. And in fact, they're not Anthem anymore, are they? They're Elevant. So we had our colleagues from Elevant, from Biogen, from Evidation Health, from Janssen, from Eli Lilly, from Merck, from Savvy Patient Co-op, as well as our colleagues from Pfizer all come to the table and say, we need to figure out with payers and patients and pharma at the table, the project was called 3Ps, what does good look like in terms of evidentiary packets that aren't separate from what our regulatory colleagues are expecting, but how can we think about a more holistic, integrated approach to evidence generation so that we are meeting all of the needs of decision makers? And the rationale behind that is not just commercial success, although that's absolutely imperative to keep our industry going. It's because we don't want to use these tools. We don't want to demonstrate using the best, most novel measures possible that new therapies are making a meaningful change for patients in ways that we haven't been able to measure before, but are critically important, and then delay going to market because additional evidence is required by our payer colleagues because we haven't taken the time to take them with us. 
we haven't got them confident in the kinds of quality data that it is possible to generate from sensors. And Ebony, I'm going to share one more thing because I think it's a lovely turn of phrase and I think it applies well here. Amy Abernathy has a lovely phrase she uses. And she says, in industry, we have to take the time to work with our regulatory colleagues in innovation to build regulatory muscle in that area. And I think we need to apply that to our payer and HTA colleagues, as well as our internal HEOR colleagues and commercial Mm -hmm. colleagues who are comfortable with this too, right? We need to think about building their muscle vis-a-vis what does good look like? What does trustworthy, high value and reliable look like in this digital era of medical product development? Now, are there any markets in which reimbursement pathways based on digital evidence are emerging? It's really interesting because I think there's two pieces here. First of all, we risk in some ways conflation between a digital drug development tool or a digital mm-hmm. health technology that's used to give us information about the performance of other medical products and mm-hmm. digital health products that are diagnostic or sort of interventions in and of themselves. So we can look at Germany, for instance, and with the DIGA legislation, they are leaps and bounds ahead in terms of not just regulatory decision making, but market access for new mm-hmm. digital therapies. Now, they are relying on a lot of digitally generated evidence, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their drug approvals or drug market access is particularly precocious or different to the other sorts of regulatory decision-making for drugs, for example, based on digital Mm -hmm. evidence or that sort of market access moment. And in fact, if we want to look at where perhaps have we used the most digital evidence, I'm going to go nuts and say the U.S., CDRH has released a list of 90 different medical products that have been approved using real-world data and evidence. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that a lot of that came from the electronic health record, from digital registries, for example. The US is actually quite far ahead in considering these things. They've used things like synthetic control arms in order to evaluate oncology products in more rare cancers or terminal cancers. We've seen this embrace of novel streams of data before. And so what I think we have to do, and the way that we move forward using the best science possible, drawing on the greatest experience globally is to cherry pick, if you like, Mm -hmm. some of these moments of experience. We have good experience with real world data and evidence in the US, perhaps better than anywhere else in the world. We have in Germany, HTA is really thinking about reimbursement admittedly for digital products as opposed to molecular products, but using digital evidence sets. And we see payers themselves, interestingly, in the US, relying on digital data for other sorts of decision-making. So not for drug reimbursement, but for example, if you have COPD in the United States and you have a good private health insurance plan, the likelihood is they're tracking your activity using some kind of sensor some kind Mm -hmm. of wearable, because they know that that's an important part of a wellness program. So they recognize value in that data. They recognize value in that information. So when these group of organizations came together and we issued our three P's recommendations about digital endpoint value, Ebony, where we started was, what do we already know about what good looks like, where the trust lies, where the evidence exists? So we looked to Germany, we looked at the wellness programs within insurance programs, and we started to build out and we've got some terrific resources 
that open access, I encourage everyone to take a look around what does it mean to build an integrated evidence plan? And when we're thinking about selecting digital endpoints, are we thinking about endpoints that not only are optimized for the pre-market moment, but that we could pull through into the post-market because we know that reimbursement decisions will always hinge on real-world data and evidence. When we're thinking about validating a digital endpoint, are we comparing it to excellent reference measures that will satisfy our regulatory colleagues, as well as quality of life metrics? healthcare utilization that we know our payer colleagues are particularly interested in. We have this opportunity, and I think this goes back to the whole theme, the digital virtuous loop. We have the opportunity to build some of these evidentiary approaches, some of our thinking about a priori generating and defining new types of real-world data and evidence that we can mine again and again down the line by selecting the right tools, by selecting the right measures, We just need to be intentional. And it's not enough to sort of ignore our HEOR colleagues internally until, you know, we're ready to go to market. That's not going to work. We have to engage our payer colleagues at the same moment we engage our regulatory colleagues. So a lot of these ideas are encapsulated in the three P's recommendations, but I think they're common sense if we just recognize that we have to bring everyone with us. Yeah, those are great points. And to, to stay on that topic around the global reimbursement pathways. In September 2020, McKinsey issued a report on the European path of reimbursement for digital health solutions. And the headline stated, the fail fast and break things approach that tech startups favor probably won't work in healthcare. A slower, more deliberate route to market and reimbursement is required. Can you give your insights on that with regards to the slowness or the deliberate route that they're speaking of in this article as it relates to the global reimbursement considerations. I'm going to sound very English for a second and come at you with a double (laughs) negative and say, I don't disagree with that, but I think it may be oversimplified. Do I think that leading with a tech first strategy and moving as quickly as humanly possible is the way to improve things? No, but our unofficial tagline, if you like, Ebony at Dime is clinical quality work on a tech timeline. We have perhaps inadvertently, but we've juxtaposed these two ideas. You can't possibly go quickly and move forward with evidence and rigor. And I actually disagree. That's not to say we're going to generate high quality evidence overnight. Of course, we're not. But it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily going to take 10 years. And we simply cannot get stuck in these timelines because the patients that we are here to serve need new therapies. There are massive unmet need for affordable, accessible new molecular products that work for people around the world, to your point about sort of global reimbursement. What we need to think about is being more intentional and economy of effort and economy of timelines in order Mm -hmm. to get Mm -hmm. right. And that's why, as we think about payers, we aren't doing a separate set of recommendations over here about the different kinds of evidence you need to gather. Rather, at the heart of what success looks like as we digitize clinical trials is the integrated evidence plan, that we actually need to pause and think upstream about the different needs for evidence by the different stakeholders. And at that point, you can design clinical trials and perhaps companion or parallel real-world studies 
in order to generate the kinds of data and evidence that's needed by all decision makers. So I want to perhaps problematize this idea that you can't move quickly and that we're destined to decades and decades until we get this right. Because quite frankly, our industry has a variety of different pressing challenges. We need to reap the benefits of digital. We need to do it on an aggressive timeline, but that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean work on evidence. Let's focus on the integrated evidence plan. And then to the part of your question about a global approach, I think we are starting to see harmonization. Did this work on three Ps? We had a variety of different workshops with global regulators and payers. We had one that was focused on North America and one that was focused in Europe. And within Europe, there are a variety of different payer and reimbursement models, sort of single system like the UK and Italy through to more regional systems, sort of like Germany, for example, where it's differently administered. What we heard from our payer colleagues was not substantially different across these regions. Interesting. What we want to see is, first of all, is the data and evidence trustworthy? And we're doing mm-hmm. that with regulatory colleagues anyway. And then the questions that they have is, can we take this measure and can we pull it through so that we can collect the necessary real-world data and evidence in the post-market? Similarly, can we tether this measure to downstream utilization of healthcare or downstream cost. And we Mm. can get uncomfortable with that as we like, but the reality of it is that's how pricing and reimbursement decisions are made. So that's how we have to set our studies up. And it's not beyond the reach of any of us to do that. We've done it with traditional measures, and now we just need to extrapolate that into the digital measure. We do things like couple the V3 framework for high quality digital endpoints with exactly the kind of clinical validation and quality of life metrics that we've always done. This is well within our wheelhouse. We just need to prioritize it. What would be your main recommendations to different organizations on trying to foster that collaboration, that early collaboration across functions that would allow for the appropriate evidence generation plans to be created so that they can move forward with this plan that you're talking about? In some ways, I feel like we're going back in time, sort of five or six years, Ebony, because you remember we banged the table and we have to bring in your regulatory affairs colleagues and you have to go to your regulatory colleagues early and often. We have to do this together. We cannot do it in silos. And I think we just have to rinse and repeat. We've been very successful with that. So now. Right. Reach out to your colleagues in HEOR internally, bring them to the table, tell them the kinds of evidence that you plan to be collecting, start thinking about how you prove out value vis-a-vis these these novel kinds of measures, these high-resolution data flows that are captured outside of the clinic, that we don't Mm -hmm. have those cross-references about downstream utilization of different healthcare, long-term quality of life outcomes. Build that intentionally together. And at the moment at which you think you need to start talking to your regulatory colleagues, start talking to to sort of payers too. And what I think is really interesting is we're starting to see movement in Europe and in the US, where actually in the US, CMS and FDA are starting, there's a pathway where we can talk to them together. Similarly, Mm -hmm. there's um, increasing movement in Europe where our EMA colleagues, particularly in the fast track process for evaluation, are starting to bring their uh, regional HDA colleagues to the table on their side as well, on the government side, on the regulation side, they are also thinking about harmonizing wherever possible their needs for data and evidence. Again, it's not often that you have the opportunity to sort of build best practices from scratch, drawing on good science that's already exists. That's Mm -hmm. the opportunity that we have. We just have to get everyone to the table before we start moving too quickly and get ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
So it sounds like we we have the tools and the key is to not reinvent the wheel, start applying this into this new context so that we can advance going forward. Are there any other additional things we should be thinking about to move this forward? We've talked a lot about thinking early, thinking often, moving things upstream. All of that holds true. And I think there is one decision point that transcends stakeholder group, and that is the decision of what to measure. Using mm-hmm. digital measures or any sort of measure, regardless of whether you're using a paper tool, whether you're using a lab, you know, a lab assessment, whether you're using some kind of sensor-generated measure, being very intentional about why you are measuring anything. If we do that well, and I have some concerns about what's happening in the marketplace now. I mm. have some concerns that we are measuring things sometimes because we can, and sometimes we are seeing both scientists and um, sort of digital product developers trying to differentiate their study or differentiate their digital Mm. based on what they're measuring instead of a priori agreeing what's important clinically, what's important from scientific decision-making, and most importantly, what matters most to patients, then focusing our efforts there, collecting the most robust evidence we can and using the highest quality products, the Digital mm-hmm. product market can can compete over who's got the most secure product, who has the best usability and utility for the site, for the patient, for the data scientist who's receiving the data. These are ways you can differentiate your product. You don't have to measure something new that no one's measured before right. just because you think it's cool and just because you're able to. And I think regardless of the decision that's being made by whatever stakeholder, starting fundamentally with what are we trying to measure and why is always going to make the downstream decisions and burden of evidence collection as successful as possible. Thank you. Those are great insights. We have one last question to wrap up with. What do you hope will happen next? When we look at the landscape of digital endpoints being used in medical product development. And Ebony, as you know, at Dime, we maintain a open access library of digital endpoints actively being used in clinical trials. Currently, we have 325 unique digital (laughs) methods being used by 96 different sponsors across drug development, biologics, devices. And more recently, actually, we've seen gene therapies coming in. I hope that we don't simply remain very busy and active in this space, but that actually we start to focus, that we start Mm -hmm. to focus our collective attention on where is the greatest unmet need for either new measures or new approaches to measuring so we can make trials more accessible and the data we capture more generalizable. Can we come together and collectively define what those high value measures are to all of the different stakeholders that we've been discussing today? And can we use those data to increase the rate of technical success, to speed the progress of high quality therapies that actually address the most pressing symptoms and get those products to market as quickly as possible? Can we measure in every facet of the patient's lived experience how that product is helping them? And then I think here's where it gets exciting. And this is the next instantiation of digital and clinical trials. And it goes back to our theme of the digital virtuous loop. Can we use that kind of information and bring it back upstream? And if perhaps start to see things like digital phenotypes emerging, because we have this high resolution data across more inclusive populations than we've ever recruited or measured. Mm -hmm. 
Can we feed that back upstream? Can we start to get at some of these to date treatment resistant conditions? Can we start to do things like say, Alzheimer's is an enormous diagnostic state. Are there actually diagnosis or phenotypes in there? And if we target those, can we finally be successful? That's the bit that gets me excited. I think there's the moment in front of us today. And then I think there's the long-term implications of intentionally and with rigor and long-term outlook starting to use this data. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say it, to really transform how we do clinical research and how we bring new effective therapies to market for patients. But what keeps you up at night? What do you fear will happen next? There's a sports term in here somewhere, and it's, can we still defeat from the jaws of victory? And (laughs) whether it's that we see the first label for a new Mm -hmm. medical based on a digital endpoint, and there was no commercial strategy behind it, and either the reimbursement decision isn't what that team wanted it to be, and that has negative ripple effects across the industry. That's what we're trying to address. That's how we're trying to support the industry with things like three P's. And we've talked about success at scale before. Right. We also need to think about building the infrastructure to support this bold vision that we've been talking about. We can't do data integrations with single point solutions. We need to think about an infrastructure and approach to data standards that actually allows this to come through at scale. Last piece is getting this right is going to take a large amount of investment. And I don't think we should pretend it won't. And this goes back to the McKinsey report that you mentioned. Yeah, Yeah. it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of evidence. The thing that keeps me up at night is, are we working intentionally and in collaboration to make sure we maximize the return on that investment? Are we Mm -hmm. developing measures that are the highest value to clinical decision-making and to patients? Is that where we're devoting our resources? Every time we build a study, are we thinking about integrated evidence plans? Every time we start thinking about the operations and the data management of a digital or a decentralized clinical trial, are we thinking about not just using the data for a single decision, but is it sufficiently accessible? And that comes with consent, different sorts of things and reliable. Is it sufficiently trustworthy that we can use that data again and again and again and drive towards that virtual digital loop and really build towards a future moment of precision medicine, of the learning healthcare system that we've been talking about for a decade or so. It's not that I don't think it's within reach. It's that we have to be very intentional in order to grasp that promise. And missing it is the bit that keeps me up at night. And essentially, Ebony, that's why we do the work we do at Dime. Wonderful. These were great insights, Jennifer. And those are all of our questions. So thank you very much for joining us today. And for DIA, I am Ebony DeShield Ajay. To learn more about this topic, visit us online at diaglobal.org.